Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning, an exclusive extended interview with China's ambassador to New Zealand. If war or military conflict is imposed upon us, but we have no choice but to respond. Then, the fringe parties and sometimes controversial figures chasing MMP's elusive 5%. We will have that story for you shortly, but we are doing things a bit differently today. We are going to dedicate much of our show to arguably one of the most important political figures in the country. In January, Wang Xiaolong arrived in New Zealand and took over as China's new ambassador, stepping into the role at a time when China's place in the world and China's place in the Pacific is the subject of intense debate. For days, the Chinese military conducted aggressive exercises in the Taiwan Strait, firing missiles into the nearby waters and simulating an attack on the disputed island. A response to a decision by US House leader Nancy Pelosi, who at the start of this month became the most senior American political figure to visit Taiwan in the last 25 years. In my opinion, it was reckless, if you want to be kind. Um, it was provocative and it was actually dangerous. But the relationship between the superpowers has arguably been deteriorating for some time. Former US President Donald Trump launched a trade war with President Xi Jinping. Then last year, America signed a deal that will eventually give Australia nuclear submarines, a move that China interpreted as a major provocation. In February, China signed a no-limits partnership with Russia, shortly before Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. Add to that the debate over China's crackdown on Hong Kong and the impact of the global pandemic. This is an especially tumultuous period for the world order, as two superpowers jockey for position. And in the middle... Well, that's us. New Zealand, which culturally and politically identifies more with the liberal democracies of our traditional allies, but whose biggest trading partner is China. Over the last few years on Q&A, we have requested interviews with China's ambassador on many occasions, and every time we've been turned down. Until now. This is the first time Ambassador Wang Xiaolong has been interviewed for TV since he arrived in New Zealand in January. The ambassador studied at the University of Kent, has a PhD in economics, and was previously China's ambassador to Mongolia, as well as holding several other diplomatic positions. The Chinese embassy did not ask for any topics to be off limits. But just so you know, Q&A agreed not to edit anything out of the interview. We hope you too see the value in an extended conversation with China's top representative in Aotearoa. So I sat down at Wellington Museum with Ambassador Wang Xiaolong. Why do you feel it's important to do this interview? Well, uh, I think in terms of the relationship, uh, the bilateral relationship between New Zealand and China, it is standing at an important juncture because we're faced with a complex and rapidly changing world. Uh, some very complex challenges uh, face both of us. And uh, uh, as for the relationship itself, it keeps evolving uh, in response to some of the changes that are taking place in both countries and around us in the world. So I think it is a good moment to, uh, to reflect uh, on the relationship 
and share some of my views and observations with the audience. That's, uh, so thank you for the opportunity. It's a great pleasure to be speaking with you. Wow. And I think uh, reflections are a really good place to start. Mm. I was interested to note that since 2019, data from Asia New Zealand shows the number of New Zealanders who perceive China as being friendly has dropped to below 30%. And the number of New Zealanders who perceive China as being threatening has almost doubled in that time. And I, and I wondered, why do you think that is? Well, I've been, I've been talking with some of the colleagues in the foundation, as well as the friends uh, from other circles here in New Zealand, and why that is the case. I think part of the reason is uh, the COVID, uh, the impact, uh, the lack of face-to-face -face, uh, exchanges, the visits. Uh, so, uh, in a way, that has contributed to the increasing uh, uh, lack of uh, understanding uh, and, and the ability to see things as they are. And as, honestly speaking, uh, people uh, also tell me that uh, probably uh, the role being played by some of the media here in New Zealand uh, is not uh, being very helpful. Uh, because, uh, because of COVID, uh, the media is the main channel through which uh, people will uh, access information, uh, for example, for people here in New Zealand about China. So uh, in that way, uh, the media is playing an outsized role. But because uh, of uh, what has happened, um, uh, there's a lot of misinformation or even disinformation going around about China. That has uh, uh, contributed uh, to uh, uh, I think uh, the, uh, the lack of uh, the, uh, the accurate understanding of how things are in China. Uh, so probably that explains it. Mm. Mm. Talk to me a little bit more about the media aspect and the media's role in this. Are there specific examples you can think of where you think China has been misrepresented or poorly represented? Well, you see, the, uh, because you, when you look at the reports, uh, on China carried in on some of the, the platforms, uh, very often uh, uh, these uh, uh, reports or coverage uh, is, is sourced uh, somewhere else uh, because uh, uh, they're very often syndicated reports uh, uh, originating <laughs> in some of, the foreign, some of the foreign media. And a lot of these media, uh, when they uh, cover what is going on in China, uh, making comments, uh, they don't necessarily reflect uh, the real public opinion of New Zealand, and they may not have the best interest of New Zealand at heart. You said it has contributed to misunderstandings. So, so what are those misunderstandings? Well, uh, for example, about uh, what is going on with the COVID, uh, the policies, the approach, uh, the state of the economy, um, and uh, uh, for example, uh, how some of the foreign policy issues uh, are being approached uh, by China, uh, the impact uh, on the region and the wider world, and the, uh, how it relates uh, to, uh, to New Zealand. Let's focus a little bit on some of those geopolitical issues. Mm. What responsibility does China take 
for the increased tensions within the Pacific region? Well, if you mean it's what is going on, uh, for example, across the Taiwan Strait, uh, I think the, uh, the crux uh, of what is going on, uh, what relates to Taiwan, uh, is the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China. Uh, and the one China principle associated with it. Uh, at the very heart of that principle is the recognition uh, that there is only one China. Taiwan is part of China, and uh, the government of the People's Republic of China is the sole legal uh, representative of China. So that is a widely uh, recognized and supported international consensus, as affirmed, for example, in the UN uh, General Assembly Resolution 2758. It is also the, the political foundation of the diplomatic relationships we have uh, established with over 180 countries in this world, including New Zealand, mm -hmm. including the United States. But what has happened uh, with, the, uh, with, the, with the, the latest uh, visit by Speaker Pelosi to Taiwan is an affront to the sovereignty and territorial integrity of China. It is a violation of the commitment made by the United States itself on, on one China. And uh, it's also a serious threat to uh, peace in the Taiwan Strait and uh, stability in the wider Asia-Pacific region. As a response to that visit, China held military exercises in the Taiwan Strait for several days. I note that those exercises disrupted shipping, including New Zealand shipping. Is it fair that China's military exercises should impinge New Zealand exporters and their commercial interests in the region? Well, because of the serious nature uh, of the visit, uh, the impact uh, on uh, China sovereignty and territorial integrity as a country. We have no choice but to respond. Uh, and our response has been legitimate, appropriate, but at the same time measured and proportionate. But on, first and foremost, it's uh, the countermeasures we have taken are meant to be defensive, uh, to safeguard our, our sovereignty and territorial integrity. Uh, but at the same time, it is also meant to be preemptive as a deterrent against further escalation by the United States and those in separation and independence-seeking elements in Taiwan uh, beyond a point of no return. Because if that happens, uh, that will spell real disaster for peace and stability, first and foremost in, in the Taiwan Strait, but with serious implications uh, for the wider Asia-Pacific region as well. So, in a way, um, um, what we're doing, uh, I think, is is a is something is 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 what is the responsible thing to do, uh, just to prevent uh, something worse from happening that will damage the interest of everyone, including countries like uh, New Zealand. When you say something worse, what is your concern there? What do you mean? Because. You see, over the years, um, we have a, a status 
because there has been talk, a lot of talk about uh, the status quo uh, being broken. Indeed, uh, the uh, status quo has been, has been broken, uh, not by China, but by uh, the United States and, and uh, the Taiwanese authorities. Because this, what is central to the status quo ante would be the recognition that there is only one China and the commitments internationally on, uh, on the one China principle. But, uh, but since the Taiwan government came to, mm. came to power, uh, it has been consistently taken steps, but egged on by some forces, including some of those in the United States, to, uh, to walk back the one China principle, the shared uh, recognition on both sides of the Taiwan Strait, the, the, there is only one China, and both sides of uh, uh, the Taiwan Strait belong to that same one China. Uh, and uh, on the part of the United States as well, uh, more recently, they've taken steps to upgrade uh, their official uh, uh, interactions with Taiwan. Uh, they've even forayed into uh, military exchanges and military uh, 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 cooperation. Mm. And they've, contrary to their commitment to face down and eventually face out arms sales to Taiwan, they've faced up those sales to Taiwan, both in terms of quantity and quality. And with this latest, uh, with this latest visit by Speaker Pelosi, they've upped the ante significantly. And instead of going for, uh, for a course correction, they have, uh, they have doubled down uh, with a follow-up visit. So we need to take uh, the, count, the, the, the countermeasures to draw a line in the sand, uh, because if this goes, if, if this is allowed to, to go on, uh, it is going to be a very slippery, slippery road. To a military conflict? Well, certainly... Is, is that your concern? Yeah, certainly. Uh, we, we won't seek any military conflict, mm. uh, because we have always uh, stood for peace mm. and opposed oppose war. But if, 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 if war or military conflict is imposed upon us, but we have no choice but to respond. But let me make a follow-up point. You may have noticed um, the most recent uh, white paper we have issued on the question of Taiwan and uh, uh, the unification uh, of the motherland. This is the third uh, white paper we have issued on, on the question. And in each and every one of them, we have made it clear consistently that what we would be aiming for would be peaceful reunification of the country. And uh, uh, over the years, we have been making consistent efforts uh, to bring about that result. And we've, at some point, we made, even made some significant progress uh, with uh, the cooperation uh, uh, from the authorities from the other side of the strait. We've established a framework for dialogues to take place, and we've established a framework for economic cooperation across the strait to take place. But since, again, since Tsai Ing-wen came to power, uh, that process has gone into, into reverse. Uh, 
And we have made it very clear that we will still make our best, best endeavors to uh, aim for peaceful solution, a peaceful reunification of the country. Uh, but we, we won't rule out any options. Uh, we, we want to keep uh, all options on the table, uh, not because we want to seek it, but because we want to uh, keep it as an option, as a deterrent uh, against uh, escalatory moves uh, uh, on the other side. And uh, that would also serve as the best guarantee that there will be a peaceful solution and uh, the country will be reunified peacefully. Coming up, I ask about China's record on human rights. We welcome back. The Solomon Islands surprised many in April by signing a security pact with China, and critics warned it could lead to increased militarization in the Pacific. The Solomon's deal was a diplomatic flashpoint of sorts. I think it is a disturbing development. But having said that, we've got to be respectful of the sovereignty of the government of the Solomon Islands. Preaching a lesson from Canberra and Wellington is not going to help. Both New Zealand and Australia were caught off guard. Foreign Minister Nanaya Mahuta called the arrangement unwelcome and unnecessary. But shortly after it was finalised, China approached 10 other Pacific nations and pitched broad cooperation agreements. So just to be really clear, you think New Zealand needs to consider increasing its military capacity, buying drones and potentially buying anti-ship or anti-aircraft missiles? Yeah, we're a maritime nation. Um, we've got an enormous maritime space with our EEZ. It's now going to be contested. And all of China's moves um, in the last five years have been taking us in this direction. But now, as I said, you know, time has sped up. We've got to be prepared to defend our interests, and we can't do that with words. A month after that interview, Defence Minister Peni Hinari announced a review of New Zealand's defence policy. And the Foreign Affairs Minister told us New Zealand would consider a range of different changes. But the fact that we are consulting with the Pacific mm. uh, on our uh, defence approach, I think signals that we are willing to hear back from our Pacific partners about what the need is, how we're able to respond, and therefore the consequences of what a response looks like. So then, I asked Ambassador Wang Xiaolong how New Zealand's response to the Solomons deal affected our relationship with China. I think when the news broke <laughs> that uh, uh, a potential uh, security deal, so to speak, uh, between China and Solomon Islands uh, uh, was, was, was in the offing, uh, there's a lot of uh, misinformation and thus misunderstanding. Because at the time, uh, there was the talk about uh, the possibility of uh, a military base or even long-term military presence by China in Solomon Islands. Mm. That turned out has to be entirely untrue. Uh, because what happened uh, uh, as far as, as the deal uh, is concerned is that we were responding to a specific request from the Solomon Islands mm. for assistance and support uh, in terms of law enforcement focused uh, uh, security assistance, 
uh, in response to what happened in Honiara, for example, uh, towards the end of last year. Yeah. And um, as part of uh, the, the chaos that occurred, the riots that occurred in Honiara, uh, a large part of the city center uh, was burned down. And uh, it turned out that the Chinese, the local Chinese community, bore the brunt of the impact. And even today, as we speak, a lot of them are still left homeless because of what happened there. So I think the, in the wake of those developments, the Solomon Islands came to us with a specific request for assistance uh, in terms of law enforcement uh, to increase their capacity uh, to maintain law and order and wider social stability. So that's what the... Uh, 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 the, the, the deal or the agreement is, is about, and nothing, nothing else and nothing more. But this is taking place at the same time as in the context of the overall relationship we have with the Solomon Islands and with perhaps some of the other uh, 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 Pacific countries uh, as well. Uh, because uh, as has been pointed out by, for example, uh, Prime Minister Dern, China has a long-standing relationship uh, uh, with some of these uh, Pacific Island countries. Uh, because remember, we, we established uh, between China and New Zealand diplomatic relations 50 years ago. And our relations with a lot of these Pacific countries are almost as old as, uh, as, as our relationship with New Zealand. So we've been there for a long time. And uh, uh, what we've been doing essentially uh, in the Pacific, yeah. because we are fellow developing countries and within the framework of what we call the South-South Cooperation, uh, the fellow developing countries helping each other, mm. we've been providing development assistance to them, uh, aiming for common development, uh, addressing uh, 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 some of the poverty issues that exist in these countries, but also helping them to increase their capacity to address some of the long-term issues like climate change. So uh, in that sense, uh, I think we, between New Zealand and China, uh, we share uh, a lot of common interests in the South Pacific because both of us would like to see peace and stability first and foremost in, in, the, in the region. And, uh, and in that respect, uh, let me say in very clear terms that as far as we are concerned, we are not interested at all in so-called geopolitical or geostrategic competition. Uh, we, we are not doing it here in uh, the South Pacific. We are not doing it anywhere else in the, in the world. Uh, what we're trying to do is to help them for common development. And uh, in that respect, uh, uh, because New Zealand has been helping these countries as well over the years, and we appreciate that. Because we understand that New Zealand has uh, long-term traditional links and influence in this region. We respect those. And we hope that on that basis, we could work with New Zealand to pull our resources together, to join our hands, to help these uh, 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 Pacific Island countries. Did you have any concerns as to New Zealand's response? to the Solomons deal and to the proposed deals with other Pacific nations? As I said, there was some misunderstanding uh, in the initial stage. Uh, but I think uh, those misunderstandings uh, have been clarified largely. 
So I think uh, uh, we have a better understanding of where uh, we come from, each of us uh, uh, on, uh, on this, as far as this region is concerned. And I think uh, we appreciate the, the observation made uh, by Prime Minister Ardern again at the China Business Summit that New Zealand is willing to explore opportunities uh, to work together with, with China. We, and we are, uh, we are willing to do that as well. well it's, it's really interesting you raise that because I interviewed New Zealand's Foreign Minister Nanaia Mahuta mm. a few weeks ago. And I asked her at the time if Pacific nations were too indebted to China. And she said this, quote, I'd say there's a level of indebtedness that sits across the whole of the Pacific to financial institutions, including the way in which China has funded certain countries, and it's a key area of vulnerability. So I wondered, in your development assistant goals, mm -hmm. what responsibility does China bear in ensuring Pacific nations don't end up in a situation like Sri Lanka in economic and political turmoil? I'm glad you mentioned Sri Lanka, uh, but let me come to this. Uh, uh, what we've been trying to do uh, uh, in the South Pacific and in other parts of the world, be it in Latin America, Africa, or closer to home, uh, uh, Asia, uh, with developing countries, is to uh, trying to increase their capacity uh, uh, for indigenous uh, development uh, through uh, development uh, of infrastructure. Uh, building up some of the key industries and helping uh, the development of the local capacity as well uh, through training, education. So the South Pacific is no, no exception. And uh, uh, we are doing this uh, uh, largely through donations. But uh, of course, uh, we, we provide some of, some of the loans as well. But most of them uh, are on comparable terms, or very, on very concessional and comparable terms, as compared to some of the other donors, like New Zealand and uh, uh, some of the uh, multilateral financial institutions, like the World Bank, like uh, the Asia Development Bank. Uh, and uh, if you look at Sri Lanka, yeah, the loans provided by China accounts for only about 10% of their overall external indebtedness. So most of that is owed to uh, uh, the other Western countries and the multilateral financial institutions. So uh, even the Sri Lankan uh, themselves uh, would tell you that uh, what has occurred, uh, the difficulties they're in at this moment has very little to do with uh, their cooperative relationship with China. But as a matter of fact, both in Sri Lanka and in some of the, uh, uh, the South Pacific countries, again, what we're trying to do is uh, to help them to develop their cap capability for long-term sustainable development. And none of these countries has fallen into debt distress because of their relationship with China. And actually, uh, what have been helping them is, is, is to uh, uh, 
to make development in these countries more sustainable over the long run. So that instead of falling into uh, traps of indebtedness, uh, they, could, uh, they could lift themselves uh, out of the, the trap of underdevelopment. After the break, why is China still trying to stamp out COVID? And then Hannah Tamaki, Sue Gray, Matt King. With their powers combined, we ask if they can turn Facebook likes into 5%. Hawkey mai. While life in some countries continues as if there is no pandemic, China is still pursuing what it calls dynamic zero COVID. The country has refused to use foreign-made mRNA vaccines and compared to before the pandemic, access to China is significantly restricted. Travellers face quarantine and critics say the approach is stunting the global economic recovery. I wondered, what have you learned about the pandemic as New Zealand transitioned from COVID elimination, as we called it, to living with the virus? Mm. Well... <laughs> But I'm here as, as an observer because uh, I, would, I have uh, my opinions on what is going on, but I'd rather uh, keep my counsel because who am I to tell, to tell you what is, what is right or what is wrong or what to do or what not to do? Uh, but I think uh, New Zealand has been generally recognized internationally as one of the best success stories in terms of uh, your preparedness and response to, uh, to COVID. And I congratulate New Zealand uh, uh, for that. And uh, we have um, our own way of dealing with it, uh, but uh, we share some similarities, at least in the initial stage in, in our approach uh, in terms of elimination. Uh, but uh, I think uh, the policies uh, in both countries have evolved since then. Why is China still pursuing a zero COVID policy? It's, we characterize it as, as, as dynamic uh, zero COVID policy. So if you look at the details, uh, our, uh, our measures have been evolving over time. For example, in terms of, we don't have massive lockdowns these days. Uh, we, we are targeting uh, some of the restrictive measures uh, 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 better, focusing on uh, smaller areas where we have these surges in, uh, in, in, in caseloads. And uh, we have also uh, reduced the number of uh, we still have MIQ in place in, in China for travelers going back, uh, going into China. Uh, Ten days, right? No, it's come down to seven days now. Seven days plus three at home. Three at home, three at home. But as compared to uh, what it used to be, uh, at the beginning it was 21 days, and at some point it came down to 14 days, and now it's seven. But uh, I'm confident that uh, with uh, the, the, the virus being un, brought under further control. I think uh, uh, with supporters uh, with, with the data and, and, and the best available science, mm. we'll further adapt our uh, COVID measures. 
Tell me a bit more about that, because right at the start of this interview, you told me about the importance that China places on person-to-person -person relationships. Mm. I noted that at the China Business Summit, you said, quote, China's door of opening up will never close, it will only open wider. Yes. But at the moment, it is extremely difficult for people to visit China. Mm -hmm. Chinese citizens who leave China know they face that quarantine period if they can make it home. Even your staff here in Wellington are still uh, pursuing a version of zero COVID in New Zealand. So how does China expect the world to maintain face-to-face -face relationships if it's shut off to the world? I think the face-to-face -face, uh, relationships, including the, uh, the travels across borders, I have, uh, I have resumed and uh, I think um, uh, it is increasing uh, in, a, in a sharply rising trajectory. Uh, again, uh, I'm confident that uh, uh, as, as, uh, as things move, uh, uh, the border control measures will further ease. But there's a trade-off, to be honest. Uh, there's a trade-off here. Uh, what happens in the short term, uh, the price uh, we have to pay, uh, uh, but with uh, what happens in the long term. Uh, because uh, as we see it, given uh, uh, the circumstances of China, because uh, if you think uh, that doing it in a country like New Zealand, uh, a, a country of five million is difficult enough, try to multiply uh, the magnitude of difficulty <laughs> about 300 times <laughs> when it comes to China. the question why, I suppose. Yeah. Right, uh, because the, uh, the, the population is simply so large. Even when uh, the rate of infection is relatively low, uh, with uh, the, uh, the, the control measures, uh, with the vaccination campaign, but still, uh, uh, because, again, because the base is so huge, mm. even if a small number of people, small rate, small proportion of people get infected, that could be still quite significant by any standard. And those would, uh, uh, would exert enormous pressure on the public health system. And all along, uh, I think this is uh, what we share between New Zealand and China. Uh, we, put, we, we put people first. Uh, we put people at the center uh, of everything we do, including uh, the control and response to the pandemic. Uh, th our first priority consistently has been protecting people's lives. So on that basis, we integrate the needs for wider economic and social development. And as, again, as things evolve, I think uh, we'll be in a better position and uh, we are already taking measures to support the economy. We are already taking measures to, uh, uh, to restart uh, the, uh, the cross-border travels. And uh, uh, people uh, are coming back to China, and, uh, and at the same time, people are beginning to come back to New Zealand as well, uh, particularly the students from China. For several years on our program, we've followed the plight of Maulan Nur Muhammad, who is the brother of a Uyghur New Zealander who is imprisoned in Xinjiang. His family here say they've received intimidating phone calls from the Chinese embassy and that they've been banned from contacting their family in Xinjiang. In what ways can you protect the rights of Uyghur New Zealanders to contact their family in Xinjiang province? Let me 
let me tell you in very clear and unmistakable terms, none of those things that has been claimed has actually happened. Because none of my staff has made any calls <laughs> to any one of these people uh, about anything. Yeah. But if there is a request for help, uh, if we are approached, uh, we'll uh, deal with that uh, in accordance uh, with uh, uh, the necessary procedures and uh, providing help, consular help and support for our citizens uh, uh, here in New Zealand is an important part of our responsibility. But let me come to a wider point mm. on the human rights situation uh, in, in, in Xinjiang. Uh, because we don't have much time, but suffice to, 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 uh, to say mm. uh, that most recently, we have a delegation of uh, about 30 ambassadors from uh, the Muslim or Islamic countries uh, visiting Xinjiang. Mm. Uh, they uh, had some in-depth uh, exchanges uh, with the people where people there, including the Uyghur people or what we call the Weiwer ethnic people. Uh, and uh, the, the, the conclusion arrived at mm. by these uh, Muslim country ambassadors after their field visit is that we have really protected our minority, minority people well, including their religious rights. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether you are aware of, uh, 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 for example, uh, in Xinjiang, uh, the, the Uyghur mm. population has tripled in its size uh, as compared to 30 years ago. And the number of mosques uh, in Xinjiang, mm. you can guess uh, where, where it stands. It's, it's 24,000 mm. mosques. I suppose the question is That's that. the biggest intensity or the biggest mm. concentration of mosques anywhere in this world, including uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, the Muslim or Islamic countries. So that is a small window showcasing uh, the way the religious rights of people are upheld and respected in Xinjiang by the Chinese government. Well, overnight, I note the UN Special Rapporteur for Modern Slavery has released a report which says China's treatment of the Uyghurs could amount to slavery as a crime against humanity. Do you personally feel any sense of shame as to the way that China has treated that Uyghur minority? Well, let me start by saying that you may have noticed as well that uh, uh, the spokesperson of our foreign ministry has rejected that report as completely baseless. Uh, you're right. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a UN rapporteur's report. It's not uh, a UN report, because UN is essentially the membership. It's not even a, a report by uh, the Secretariat of the United Nations. And, and the rapporteur is an individual uh, entrusted with a special responsibility. 
but uh, apparently that particular person is not living up to his responsibility because it's one of many reports though isn't right, it? right but if you look at the details there's only one paragraph making uh, some uh, uh, some generic accusations without any evidence to back his up and if you look at the details the notes uh, that's the interesting part because uh, it's I think it's uh, it's this this usual suspects is the the one or two uh, so-called scholars or institutions uh, uh, the references to those reports as backstop for the so-called conclusion uh, drawn by uh, the, this particular UN rapporteur. But actually, uh, I think this is a classical case of uh, the, uh, the, what they call the, the wrap-up smear tactics. Because the, you, you make an accusation, that's, that's not from me, that's from Speaker Pelosi, yeah, uh, about what happens in the United States politics. The, you make an accusation, uh, you find a couple of people to do a write-up, and you get it published somewhere, and you point to that as validation. That's exactly what has happened as far as this particular report is concerned. But that's essentially that's essentially a dog chasing its own tail, going around in circles. But, but that's totally, totally baseless. And you may also be aware that um, uh, most recently we have uh, uh, notified uh, the United Nations about our ratification uh, of uh, the two, what they call the uh, core conventions on forced labor under the auspices of the International Labour Organization, the uh, labour window for the United Nations family. So that, is, that again shows our firm commitment uh, to uh, stamp out completely forced labour uh, in China. That, has, that's, that is uh, uh, what is, we've been doing consistently through our domestic policies and this latest Verification of these two conventions is another indication of our strong commitment to that cause. Finally then, when will Jacinda Ardern be invited to Beijing and what else can New Zealand and China do to improve our relation at a time of global instability? Well, we've been, we've been looking forward to uh, a, a, another visit by uh, the Prime Minister for some time now. Uh, but because of COVID, again, uh, it, uh, it's, this hasn't taken place. But hopefully, uh, 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 as uh, the border controls ease further in both countries, uh, we could, we could uh, have, him, have her in China as soon as possible, and hopefully uh, within the course of this year. Because this year is very special for us, for our relationship. Uh, we'll be marking the 50th anniversary. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to celebrate, of course, uh, because uh, we've made tremendous progress together over the years. If you compare that to uh, what the relationship used to be about 50 years ago, uh, this, I think this, we've come really a long way. Uh, but at the same time, as I pointed out in my presentation at the China Business Summit, there's no room for complacency, because as compared to uh, uh, the uh, 
the demand from both sides as compared to uh, the aspirations from both peoples and as compared to the potential that exists, there's still a long way to go. Uh, uh, for example, in, in terms of trade, which already has become uh, the, arguably the strongest pillar of our relationship, uh, we still have huge room uh, for further growth. And apart from the traditional products, we could also diversify into some new areas. Uh, which could help to stimulate the further growth of trade mm -hmm. both ways between our two countries. Uh, we, could, uh, we could go into agri-business, agri we could go into byproducts. Uh, these are some of the strengths of New Zealand uh, uh, and we could build on and from which we could benefit uh, as far as China is concerned. Mm. I was yesterday attending a ceremony celebrating 30 years of a sister city between Palmerston North and, and Guiyang in China. Uh, I think uh, that's, a, that's a very good showcase uh, what has happened and how the relationship has benefited both sides. Uh, because uh, uh, apart from the trade and everything, uh, New Zealand export going into China, but at the same time, uh, the, the, the cooperation uh, we, uh, uh, we have conducted uh, in, in cattle farming and in, 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 in kiwi fruit farming have helped to grow uh, the relevant industries in, in China. So this is another example of how both sides could benefit for such, uh, for such a relationship. But of course, again, uh, the relationship between us is much broader than trade as such. It's, it's way beyond uh, the transactional. Uh, we have other areas as well. For example, the very strong, uh, deep people-to-people uh, -people links between our two countries. That's what I've found out since my arrival as ambassador this time around. Uh, the, the community here, the Chinese community here, is one of the biggest. It's, uh, it's, it's about a quarter of a million mm. uh, people here. Uh, so they're, they're, they're contributing enormously to uh, the relationship and to the local development. And, uh, and, and also, uh, at the international level, uh, both of us uh, support peace and development in the world. Mm. And both of us uh, would want to see uh, peace and stability in the Asia-Pacific region. And both of us will want uh, to support uh, international cooperation to address some of the common challenges, like climate change, like uh, the ongoing COVID pandemic. And actually, we have started uh, uh, working together, uh, uh, bilaterally, but more importantly, at a regional level and even globally. And these, I think, uh, are areas we share enormous common interests. And these are areas, I think, uh, uh, with great potential for future growth. Uh, in terms of the relationship. So as ambassador, I'm, 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 I'm excited. I've come in at this opportune and important juncture in our relationship. And um, I, I'm, I'm ready to work uh, with, uh, with uh, our friends in New Zealand uh, to take the relationship to the next level, uh, to give increasing substances, substance to uh, uh, the comprehensive strategic partnership we have established between us. 
That is Ambassador Wang Xiaolong. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please, kōrerōmai. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Up next, the pitfalls of trying to get cut through as a politician when your name is Matt King. This guy thought he was coming to see Mike King. Yeah. I thought he was going to be funny. Yeah. He genuinely <laughs> thought that this was Mike King on tonight. Yeah. Kia ora te whanau. Welcome back. Last election saw the emergence of so-called freedom parties in New Zealand. None of them reached the 5% MMP threshold. But ahead of next year's election, several parties have been proposing they join forces. Ahead of a high-profile protest at Parliament this week, Fina Owen spoke with some of the party leaders. Down in Bar Africa on Wednesday night, it's Albany's turn for the Democracy NZ Roadshow with leader Matt King. This guy thought he was coming to see Mike King. Yeah, I thought he was going to be funny. Yeah. He genuinely <laughs> thought that this was Mike King on tonight. Matt King, the former National MP for Northland, launched his party soon after visiting the occupation at Parliament. That seems to have paid off. So why have you come here tonight? Because I've seen Matt at the peaceful protests. Are you looking for a party to, to vote for? Um, yeah, definitely looking for a party to vote for, so i like to, yeah. Matt's not the only one that I'm looking at. But. I was actually a member of the National Party, but I haven't renewed my subscription. So you're looking around, you're what... As Matt King claims that 20 to 30% of voters are what he describes as politically homeless. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, I think this election's going to be the most important election that this country's ever had. This is where I work and have worked basically the last 30 years, five days a week at the coal front, and I see all the problems with young people and the people here every day. South Auckland barrister Ted Johnston is co-leader of New Conservative, along with former teacher, now law student, Helen Houghton. Well, family, of course, is who we are, is the heart of New Conservative. New Conservative was founded by Colin Craig. Last election under Leighton Baker, they gained 1.5% of the vote. Since MMP was introduced in the mid-90s, no new party has broken through that 5%. All of the smaller parties recognise that, and we know that very likely we will need to make deals, make coalitions, make alliances of some sort. So we, like every other party, no doubt, is having meetings, informal meetings with everyone else. Since I've been here, I've been doing a lot of meetings around the community. The Outdoors and Freedom Party was given a boost at the Tauranga by-election. Controversial lawyer and anti-vaxxer and co-leader Sue Gray gaining just under 5% of the vote. Really, really fun place. She's in the UK right now, but still on the campaign trail. We will be the game changers in Parliament. There's scope to have in some sort of alliance or umbrella party that represents a whole range of different issues, and we can actually disagree. But you want to be that umbrella party? I want to be part of that party. I don't necessarily think it has to be the Outdoors and Freedom Party. We're, we're well-placed because we're registered. Vision New Zealand is registering at about one for the first time. That's Hannah Tamaki's party. The poll was a very pleasant, beautiful surprise. Um, and I think it puts it down to the fact that people have got to know us a little bit better over the lockdowns and over all that's been happening um, and maybe visually seeing me at protests. 
At their last protest, led by Brian Tamaki's Freedom and Rights Coalition, Tamaki announced he was establishing an umbrella party and that four minor parties had signed up. Can you yet name these other four parties that you're talking to? You know very well the answer to that. No, I can't. Somebody thought this jug was worth like hundreds of dollars. Um, go to Briscoe's. Back in the Tamaki's kitchen, we pressed Vision NZ's leader on those parties. It's not my place to, to say to, in front of the, the camera who the other people are. They have to actually be prepared themselves to say it. But from what I'm understanding, Brian wants to um, announce it on the 23rd on the steps of Parliament. Brian Tamaki has said that he, he reckons he has four parties signed up. Oh gosh, that's yeah. interesting. He hasn't told us about that, but no, we so have informal you. discussions. So no, certainly not no. us. We need to move away from this co-governance and biculturalism and get back to what New Zealand was built on. Echoing Hobson's pledge and well over on the right, the New Nation Party is off to Tamaki's protest on Tuesday. Its leader, Michael Jacob, told Q&A, after Tuesday, things will get interesting. There is no uh, alliance at this stage. Uh, that we're involved and we are talking. One party is a Christian party who won't say who they're talking to. It stood 29 candidates in the last election and is led by Ian Johnson, who cites lessons from the past. Jim Anderton proved that um, it can be done by bringing minor parties together. The problem with the alliance, we believe, was that um, it um, Jim took over and, and actually overwhelmed the the minor parties and their voice. Thank you so much for coming along tonight. Matt King's Democracy NZ also made it to the latest poll at 1%. So at the moment you haven't signed on to an umbrella party arrangement? No I haven't and I don't think we will be. Um, I'm confident that Democracy NZ, our strategy and our team, we're, we're willing to give it our best shot and I absolutely believe that the fact that I could win my seat gives me an advantage over all the other minor parties. So only one of the parties we've looked at may possibly have a deal with the Tamakis. That's New Nation Party. But in the age of Facebook, right-wing local freedom movements, some with political ambition, are constantly popping up. Enough is enough! It was also a 23rd of August, 18 years ago, that Brian Tamaki led his last big protest to Parliament. This time, he plans a people's court. We don't want people to get hurt like they did um, at the last one. So I guess people in Wellington are wondering, will they put tents up? Are they going to try for another kind of... Oh, no, it's not a, that's not what it's planned for. It's but there could be somebody out of your control, well, Hannah, I think who I, put... if, Well, once we all walk away, well, once um, Brian and Freedom and Rights Coalition and the Freedom Movement walk away, whatever anybody else does, sorry about it. Not our, not our concern. The idea of People's Court and the Nuremberg Trials and Code is often talked about by the Freedom Movement. This weekend, the Outdoors and Freedom Party leader is off to Germany. There's some kind of commemoration of Nuremberg um, this weekend, I believe, so I'm doing my best to get there. Back at Bar Africa, Matt King's audience are on their feet. He knows he has many more anthems to sing if Democracy NZ is to go it alone. That is Fina Owen reporting. Hey, just before we go, a quick reminder. Every week on Q&A, we publish our show as a podcast. 
We put it up without ads and you can find it by searching NZ Q&A on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. For now though, kua matu, that is Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thanks for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thank you very much for your feedback. Hey te wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.